Well, as we carry on in our series in this letter, it is fairly soon that we will be at the turning point, which is chapter 4, as I mentioned last week. You may know that in many of Paul's letters, not all of them, but many, his structure is to give doctrine, theology, for the first half, and then there is a clear turning point where he moves into what you and I might term application. And such is the case with Ephesians, and that turning point comes at chapter 4, and we will soon be there. Up until now, we have, in a sense, been reveling in the theology that Paul writes. That is the first half of the letter we have been enjoying and thinking upon, meditating upon, the doctrines of grace that Paul communicates. And I trust that you've picked up his points of emphasis, not least the church and the oneness that Jew and Gentile enjoy together in Christ. But with all of that being said, it isn't too early to move into some very practical application even this evening even while we're still in chapter 3, before we get to that turning point, it is not too early to move into some very practical application. And it comes about because our text this evening is, in essence, a digression. Verses 1 through 6, or more accurately, 2 through 6 of chapter 3, is essentially a footnote, a tangential thought, a digression in Paul's argument. Now that is not in any sense to belittle the importance of what he says, but it is to acknowledge that Paul interrupts the thought with which he opens the chapter, and he doesn't resume it until verse 14. So look at the text with me. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then you may have a dash in your Bible, which would be entirely appropriate, indicating on the part of the editors that Paul then embarks upon a digression of thought. He interrupts his line of thinking to give us something that just came into his mind. And it's not until we get to verse 14 that he picks up with his original argument. We see there again those words, for this reason. And Paul embarks upon his second prayer of the letter. So we have here in these six verses and in the weeks ahead, a digression in Paul's argument and the challenge for the preacher is what do you do with a digression? How do you preach what is not the main argument? Especially when you study the contents of the digression, and you note, and perhaps you saw this as I read it, it is in essence a summary of what he has just told us in chapter 2. It is not that he's giving us new doctrines, but he's refreshing our thoughts as to the ones that he's already spoken of in 
chapter 2. So now, how do you preach this text? How do you exposit this text in such a way that it is meaningful and life-giving for the church? And again, this is where I think we can make some very practical points of application. You see, as we study verses 1 through 6, what we'll see is that certainly Paul revisits already stated truths, but he does so within the framework of an autobiographical comment. Paul tells us again that the Jew and the Gentile are co-heirs in the gospel, but now he does so by way of some autobiographical comments. He talks to the Ephesians about how he received God's grace, how he passed it on to them, and what the substance of it is, that is the mystery, the the oneness of Jew and Gentile in Christ. And so with the autobiographical emphasis noted, I think it is appropriate to look at these verses as something of an example to us. Paul, here in these six verses, functions for us as something of an example. Now, there are differences, and we'll note them as we go along. Paul was an apostle. He had a very special calling and ministry that we do not share in. So I want to be careful, but at the same time, there are enough points of commonality between Paul in Christ and us in Christ that we can look to him specifically to answer the question, how do we faithfully steward God's grace? That is the question that I want to answer this evening How are we to faithfully steward God's grace? Paul notes that he received a stewardship. He was entrusted with God's grace and he explains what he did with that responsibility. And there are points of correspondence with our lives such that we can learn from him specifically To be a faithful steward of God's grace is first and foremost to acknowledge God's gift of it, our reception of it. It is, in turn, to then be communicators of it. And finally, it is to practice that grace each and every day. So there's our three headings. We want to acknowledge our reception of God's grace, to be faithful communicators of it, and then to practice it every day. Beginning with the acknowledgement of God's gift to us that we have indeed become recipients of His grace, verses 1 through 3. Paul begins for this reason and I actually want to withhold the exposition of those three words until we get to verse 14 when he does indeed pick up his actual argument. We'll deal with those words then, but we can 
For now, focus on what he says after. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. I have not drawn much attention to the fact that when Paul wrote Ephesians, he did so under house arrest in Rome, simply because thus far in the letter, Paul hasn't made much mention of it. We will, I'm certain, speak about it more as the letter progresses, especially when we get to chapter 4. But it's worth noting at this stage, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he was under arrest. He did not enjoy the freedoms of a Roman citizen. Ephesians is one of what we call the four prison epistles. Ephesians and Colossians, their sister epistles, the content of those two letters are very similar. They go together. And then the two Ps, Philemon and Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon and Philippians, there are four prison epistles And it's just sobering to think about the weighty truths that Paul communicates, the delight that he is able to find, the satisfaction that is so evident in his writing, the contentment that he practices in those letters while under arrest. That in and of itself should be instructive for us and plays a part in Paul's faithful stewardship of God's grace. Now, when he goes on and says in verse 2, and here's the digression, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, that word assuming is not representative of doubt, any doubt in Paul's mind that his recipients, the Christians in Ephesus, have heard. He's not saying, I write to you about this grace, I'm not entirely sure that you've heard of it. Some people take this as evidence that the letter didn't actually go to the church in Ephesus. In fact, properly understood, that word expresses Paul's confidence. He had been with the church in Ephesus for some two years. He had functioned as their pastor. He's confident that they've heard of his stewardship of God's grace. He had taught them as much when he was with them, and he now writes of it. Certainly, we could translate this word. Certainly, you have heard of it. Of what had they heard? The stewardship of God's grace. Now, that word, stewardship, is very important to our text this evening. We have a sense of what it means, an entrusting, very literally, a responsibility of management. Its root in the original is the same as that for the word house. We manage a house and household affairs. Paul was given the responsibility, as it were, of managing God's grace. Now, I wonder if you think of God's grace like that. It breaks into your life in such a way that you know yourself to be a disciple of Christ and you enjoy the manifold benefits that come from that. Do you ever consider that you have a responsibility to handle God's grace faithfully? To manage it or to steward His grace 
in such a way that he is honoured. That is Paul's testimony. That is the autobiographical note that he is rehearsing here. I am a steward of God's grace. It was given to him, he says at the end of verse 2, for you, the Gentiles. And then he says specifically how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, most likely they're referring to the first portion of the letter. Now again, I want to be very careful as we seek to make Paul an example that we could follow. There are points of discontinuity between his life and ours. There are aspects of Paul's ministry that we should not seek to be imitating. Paul received a very, very unique conversion experience. If indeed he does have here his road to Damascus experience, that is unique to him, pertinent to how God was working at that time in redemptive history. It's recounted for us three times in Scripture, Acts 9 and 22 and 26. And as I'm sure you know, Paul was on the road to Damascus, a great light shone. He heard audibly the voice of the Lord Jesus And he was instructed by that voice. That is not how the Lord is in the business of saving people today. We spoke about this this morning. As the canon is now closed, as the church has now been established, we don't anticipate those kind of conversion experiences much more normally through the faithful preaching of the gospel. That is how the Lord adds to the church. It is how he has been adding to the church for centuries. And so I'm not trying to draw that point of correspondence. Paul receiving that stewardship happened in a unique way that is distinct from our salvation experience. Additionally, as Paul goes on to speak about the ministry, or excuse me, the mystery in verse 3, it may be there that Paul is speaking not so much about the Damascus Road experience, but as you probably know, thereafter, he spent some time in isolation and the Lord gave him further revelation. You can read about it in Galatians chapter 1, and he speaks about going off. And being built up in revelation so as to be equipped for his ministry. Most likely in verse 3, Paul is alluding to that period in his life, which again, we should understand as unique, distinct. Not the means by which God builds us up in the truth today. The canon again is closed And God shows us, reveals to us his will and the truth through this book. This is how we are built up in our understanding of the gospel and theology. So there's another point of discontinuity between Paul's life and ours. So what then is the common, the common point of emphasis between us and the Apostle Paul? It is that we have all been entrusted with God's grace. 
the point of commonality between the Apostle Paul and us is that we have received the gospel of grace and it is ours to steward, to take care of, to handle properly, to think about and to manage, as it were, in our own hearts and in our own lives in such a manner that the Lord would be glorified. We are to be those who stewards God's grace faithfully how it begins with a simple acknowledgement of that grace. You see how Paul is eager very simply to acknowledge the Lord's work in his life. In the same way, the very first step to being a faithful steward of God's grace is to acknowledge your reception of it. To acknowledge that God has worked in your life in this way. To have and to cultivate in your heart a frequent remembrance of the fact that you are a sinner without any spiritual life in you. To cultivate in your heart a frequent remembrance that you did not earn your salvation. You didn't merit it. You didn't work for it. It was not that you were doing something right that God shone the light of the gospel into your heart. That is not what happened. But it is by His grace and His grace alone that you are here this evening in Christ. And I would encourage you to frequently return to those truths. I would encourage you very practically to return to them frequently, especially in prayer. In just a few minutes, we'll speak about our articulation of God's grace to others. Before we get there, there must be a remembrance of God's grace in prayer. So this morning, I encouraged you to pray frequently, asking that God would renew your affections for Christ. Pray that God would stir your heart in love for your Savior frequently. This evening, I want to encourage you to simply rehearse the truth of God's grace in your life in prayer, often. Prayer should not be limited to that which we ask for. But as I've said before, you can think of prayer more properly as communion. Think of prayer as a house. One room is our request. There are many other rooms to be found in. Pray to your Father in heaven and often tell Him, of His grace. It honors Him to do so and it instructs your heart. Tell God how thankful you are that He saved you by His grace and His grace alone. Allow your heart to be led in thankfulness as you tell God how grateful you are. The old Puritan adage is appropriate. You pray until you pray. It is not the case necessarily that you wake bursting with gratitude. The flesh remains and oftentimes it is overruling our affections. Pray 
and tell God how thankful you are for his grace. And watch how your heart follows, how your very prayers, your communion with God becomes instructive for you. If you are negligent in this respect, always taking his grace for granted and be willing to forget the reality of his grace in your life through the work of salvation, you very quickly become a presumptuous Christian. You very quickly start to take his goodness for granted. You adopt a very entitled posture within the church. You resent God when trials come your way. Things are not in their proper perspective. And you stop flourishing. You're not a blessing to anyone now. And all that has happened is that you have allowed the grace of God to escape your view. You keep bringing it back into view, setting it before you, especially in the discipline of prayer. That's how you are a faithful steward of God's grace. It puts everything in perspective. It enables you and equips you to serve in the church. Again, on the near horizon are Paul's commands, his exhortations in chapters 4, 5, and 6. We're nearly there. Paul is building the Ephesians to be ready to receive them. How is he doing it? How is he preparing their hearts? He's bringing God's grace into view. Secondly, having acknowledged the gift of God's grace, our reception of it, we then must be faithful communicators of it. We are to be found as faithful communicators of God's grace. Verse 4. Paul says, when you read this, the letter, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Notice he's already said at the end of verse 2 that his ministry, the stewardship, was given to me for you. He's already shown us his awareness of his responsibility towards others. And if you go back and read those passages in Acts that tell of his conversion, the Lord very specifically commissioned him to be a light for the Gentiles. And then here in verse 4, Paul demonstrates his faithfulness to communicate that grace simply through the writing of this letter. Now, it is almost a passing comment in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, and then he moves on. But I want you just to ponder with me how extensive a ministry this verse represents. Paul's communication of God's grace was by no means a passing season in his life. From the moment he was saved, he was a man on a mission. He spent himself communicating God's grace to others. 
He wrote letters, certainly, but each letter in turn represents a ministry, a relationship, and as we've already said this evening, Paul spent a few years with these Ephesians and possibly would have stayed with them longer had it not been for the Holy Spirit who moved him on through a tearful goodbye unto danger and persecution. So this passing comment in verse 4 represents thousands of hours of labor. Not simply preaching, but living a gospel-centered life amongst the saints to whom he is now ministering. Think about Paul writing to the Thessalonians and how he says there, you know how I labored amongst you awake night and day so that I would not be a burden to any of you. Paul was intent that the gospel would be preeminent in his ministry and they would see its worthiness. He would not be an obstacle to their embracing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about Paul's ministry in Corinth and how those believers seemingly behaved often towards him in a way that was not accepting, not submissive, and yet Paul persevered through much hardship that they would know about the grace of God. Think about his ministry to the Ephesians, how dearly he loved them. But it was again his mission to make known the grace of God that caused him to move on. And in every town, every city, where the Holy Spirit led him, his ministry was twofold. It was a ministry of making God's grace known through evangelistic efforts. And thereafter, a ministry of making God's grace known by building up the saints. And again, Paul's ministry in many respects is unique. But he can be held up as an example for us all to follow in so much as we have received this stewardship. So we should be faithful communicators of God's grace. And that should look like in each of our lives both a ministry of communicating God's grace amongst God's people and a ministry of communicating God's grace outside of the church. Now I want to talk about those two ministries briefly in a very practical manner. We do, every one of us, have a ministry to one another. We have a responsibility to one another. You can look around you this evening and see the brothers and sisters in Christ to whom you are responsible. You bear a responsibility to them. Wonderfully, that responsibility is relatively straightforward, and it begins with a communication of God's grace. Very simply, you can be an enormous encouragement. You can have a profound ministry within the church by simply speaking the truth of God's grace to your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not hard. It is easy. It ought to be frequent. And you'll be amazed of what an impact you will have in the lives of others. As you strive 
consistently speak of God's grace. Now we come together and we enjoy time of fellowship together with one another and I have no problem with the conversations being around things that aren't necessarily of a spiritual nature. There is some enjoyment to be had there, but as I've said before, I don't want you to think of that truly as fellowship. Because unbelievers could have those same conversations. True fellowship, as I often put it, is when Christians enjoy the gospel together. And that is where you should be striving to have the majority of your time together in conversation. And you can be that influence that points to the reality of God's grace. Encourage someone by telling them where you see God's grace in their life. Encourage them to tell them where you see God at work so evidently in their life. And don't be ashamed to point it out in your own life. You're not elevating yourself because you're pointing to God's grace, which by its very nature speaks of your complete inability to do this work and God's absolute sufficiency. Don't be afraid to point out manifestations of God's grace in this body of believers. Because in so doing, you will have a wonderful ministry. You will join in the work of building up this church <clears throat> it is not a work that is reserved for the pastors alone. We're soon going to be there. Ephesians chapter 4, the saints do the work of the ministry. It is the teaching of the word that equips the saints to do the work of the ministry. What is that work if not a faithful, steadfast communication of God's grace? It is that simple, and at the same time, that profound. Be someone within the church who speaks often of God's rich grace in your life and in the lives of others. Now, what about communicating that grace outside of the church? And here is where in the Lord's providence, wonderfully, not through any effort on our part, this evening's sermon overlaps wonderfully with this morning's. We were thinking together about being the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and here again, we think about that next step beyond right living in the world. We want to think about our communication of God's grace to sinners. As I say that, tremors of fear will be running through some of you. Evangelism. It is a gift. Some are gifted with a unique ability to evangelize, and Paul says as much in chapter 4 of this letter. But notwithstanding the reality of the gift that is given to some, we all, without exception, have a responsibility to speak the truth of the gospel to a lost world. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus commissions his disciples, without exception, 
to go into the world and to teach others to observe what Jesus has commanded, and that begins with evangelism. And so we all are responsible in this way. Very practically, I would encourage you to think through various relationships in different ways. There are many fleeting relationships in our lives, and I tend to approach those differently to ones that I know will be more long-lasting. So just by way of example, when I travel, I get into a taxi or an Uber, I know most likely this driver I won't see again. In my lifetime, I most likely won't see him or her again, and so in that relationship that will be fleeting, I pray the Lord would give me the grace and the opportunity to communicate the gospel. And it is my goal in that five, ten-minute journey. And it is remarkably easy to get there. How long have you been doing this job? Do you like your job? How long have you been living here? And at some point they reciprocate, and if they don't, I'll just offer the answers I want to give. I'm here for this reason, and... Since you asked, I'm a pastor, do you go to church? And you're sat there thinking, yeah, but you're the pastor, you get to say that. There are a hundred ways of getting to the question, do you go to church? That doesn't have to be the question, it's one I found to be particularly helpful to get onto the gospel. I'm in this city for a few days, I need to be back by Sunday to make sure I'm at church. Do you go to church? As a footnote, hardly ever have I found it to be a point of offense when you ask such a question. And before you know it, you're on to a conversation that is oriented around eternally significant truths, and you have the opportunity to speak the truth about Christ. And the wonderful thing is we're not charged with affecting the outcome. That's God's work. We just need to speak the truth and entrust it to the Lord. Now I think about longer term relationships differently, not the fleeting one-off chance encounter, perhaps a relationship with a neighbor, someone that I know, Lord willing, I'm going to see again and again over many years. I think about those relationships differently. It's not necessarily my goal in the very first conversation to articulate the gospel. I don't think I failed if I've had a chat with my neighbor and not communicate the gospel because I trust that this is going to be an ongoing relationship. But what I do want to do, going back to this morning's sermon, I do not want to hide the fact I'm a Christian. What I do want to do is speak of God's grace. And in that respect, I would just encourage you to relax. Just be yourself. Don't overthink it. Don't get nervous. Don't get stressed. Just be the person who God has made you. Be a Christian. Speak about what you love. Speak about whom you love. You love Jesus. So make mention of Him. Don't hide your trust in Him. Don't hide your affections for Him. Again, 
If you think rightly about it, there will be many opportunities in a normal conversation to reference your membership at this church, your reading of Scripture, your fellowship with other believers. And as you make mention of it, all you are doing is communicating the truth of God's grace in your life. And I trust over time, as you pray and as you are faithful to live out the gospel in that relationship, there will come opportunities down the road when you'll be able to speak the entirety of the gospel. You'll be able to explain the hope that you have and give a a fuller explanation of the message that you so dearly cling to. It will come in time. The point is whether in the church or outside of the church, we are all to be found as faithful communicators of God's grace. This is what it means to be a steward of the grace. You acknowledge your receipt of it, your reception of that grace, God's gift to you, especially in the discipline of prayer. And in your life, be it in the church or outside, Your speech is loaded with references to His loving kindness towards you. As you do so, you are showing yourself to be a faithful steward of God's grace. And finally, what does it mean to faithfully steward this grace? It means to practice it. To acknowledge God's gift to you to communicate it, and to practice it, verses 5 and 6. Notice how Paul says, again, the mystery, explaining it here. It was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is not news to the Ephesians in so much as Paul has already given them this truth in chapter 2. The mystery, as we've said before, that word throughout the New Testament carries different meanings depending on the context. In Ephesians... It refers to the union of Jew and Gentile in Christ. Paul keeps returning to that truth. Not that the Gentiles would be saved, as some suppose that was made known in the Old Testament, but more specifically that the Jew and Gentile would form a new person in Christ now worshipping together. That's the mystery And it stems from the gospel, and Paul communicates it again here. But notice how he communicates it. He uses this phrase, the sons of men. In other translations, that may be rendered the people or humans, which is fine, but I do think it's intended here to be understood with a little bit more theological nuance throughout the Old Testament up until the point of Daniel 7, when the Son of Man appears, 
prior to Daniel 7, the sons of men was a term always used to highlight and draw attention to the depravity of humanity. It is a phrase that highlights particularly, it accents our sinful nature. As sinners, God did not reveal this to us previously. Now, by contrast, placing it in redemptive history, it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. How? By the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit is what Paul draws attention to. This mystery, verse 6, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, showing us how they have been joined together with the Jews and they now share in a glorious inheritance. Members of the same body, partakers of the promise. Most likely there referring to the promises that come with the new covenant. You may remember back in chapter 2, he made mention of the promises and said, you Gentiles didn't partake of them before in the old covenant, but now you do here again, most likely alluding to the new covenant. And so, the point is this, as Paul references again what is the mystery, he does so in such a way so as to accent the new covenant realities that we all partake of in Christ. Paul draws attention to our newness. It is not simply that we have received new insight into the plan of God, but that he has made us entirely new in Christ. And the way in which we faithfully steward God's grace in our life is to practice those new covenant realities. It is to be aware of, to give voice to the new covenant realities that you and I enjoy every day in Christ. It would involve being with God's people when they gather. You don't come to church just because you understand it's the Christian thing to do. You come because you're brand new in Christ and there's some other brand new people. And they gather together and they are only to be found in the church and so you are there. And you're not there in a manner that you're unprepared. Let me encourage you and exhort you this evening. I'm always preaching to the choir on a Sunday night because you are the faithful to come back. But let me encourage you further. Don't come here unprepared. Come here by God's grace, fully ready to participate in the ministry that will happen. Think about what you are doing on Saturday night to prepare your heart for the gathering of God's people on Sunday morning. Think about your use of Sunday afternoons so as to prepare yourself for the worship that awaits us on a Sunday evening. I send out those emails, Mondays and Fridays. I don't say a lot in them. But one thing I am always certain to say, here are the texts we'll study, read them, and pray in advance that God will prepare your heart to receive and to submit to the truth. That is a practicing of God's grace. 
To do that is to practice and therefore to steward the grace of God that has been entrusted to you. When you come, how do you partake? I trust one of the emphases, the new covenant emphases that you have seen throughout Ephesians and is indeed throughout Scripture is that of unity amongst God's people. I've said it so many times because it is in the text and throughout Scripture, God prizes unity amongst His people. That determines how you conduct yourself when you are here. You ensure absolutely, certainly that you are right with other brothers and sisters in this congregation. You do not allow disagreements to linger, certainly. But you can go beyond that in a very proactive way, stewarding God's grace. You look across the room, you see someone who you haven't met. You say, I'm going to go and worship beside them this morning. I refuse to hang out with the folks that I know and love because there's an opportunity here for me to go and meet a brother or sister in Christ. I don't know you. I don't know if we have much in common, but I know that we are new in Christ and I want to steward the grace entrusted to me. So can I stand beside you this morning and together we will lift our voices to God. That is a stewardship of God's grace. Undoubtedly to steward His grace is to walk in a path of obedience keeping in step with the Spirit. Undoubtedly it is to seek communion with God. It is a stewardship of God's grace to set your your mind on the hope that is to come. Even in this text, Paul says again, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. He's talking about the glory that is to come. It is a stewardship of God's grace to set your heart on heaven. Many months back, I sat and I thought, and I've shared this with you before, how I frequently commend God's people to do this very thing because it is a means by which we are sustained and God is honored to set our mind on the glory that is to come. And at the same time, it struck me that we do not facilitate that meditation on the Lord's day. And so we introduced, as you know, in our evening service, a reading, a short reading from Scripture specifically oriented to the second coming of Christ. And then we sing a song that has that doctrine, that truth in there as a simple way of setting our hearts on that glory. Don't allow that to be the only time in the week when you think about heaven. It should be one of the most frequent resting places of your mind to think about the truth that this is not the sum total of God's plan. To allow your mind to rest. Not to skip past and acknowledge, but actually to dwell upon the truth that Scripture gives us that one day you will be with Christ. And there will be no sin. None in you and none around you. And you will dwell with Him there forever. That 
is a stewardship of God's grace. And undoubtedly, to steward God's grace is to forsake the world. To put everything in perspective, look even with me at verse 13. Paul says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Referring to his imprisonment, Paul forsakes the world. He counts it as nothing. He is not valuing temporary realities. And he's asking the Ephesians to join him in that. To steward God's grace is to forsake the world. To allow the gospel to be the most important thing in your life. And to allow your treasuring of the gospel to inform form everything else around you. May we be faithful stewards of God's grace. Would you pray with me now to close? Father, in this text, which is a digression away from Paul's main argument, we see glorious realities, not only through the content of the digression, Paul reminds the Ephesians of the newness of the relationship between Jew and Gentile, wonderful realities, but so also through Paul's rehearsal of his ministry. It is an autobiographical comment and it is one from which we can learn. He is to us an example in this respect. Paul here and throughout his ministry frequently acknowledged his receipt of God's grace. Your gift to him And thus we should also. Father, cause us to be faithful. In this respect, may we be found faithful, rehearsing the truth that your grace sought us out. I do pray very practically that we would be faithful to do this in prayer knowing how instructive it is for our own hearts and how much it honors you. We see that Paul was an example to us in being a faithful communicator of God's grace. Hours and hours, year upon year of faithful ministry, very simply speaking the truth of God's grace. Sometimes that took the form of evangelism. Often it took the form of discipleship. Would you cause this church to be faithful in both? Help us to speak 
of your grace when we're with one another. May we all have a ministry of encouragement pointing to where we see your grace in the lives of others and in our life. And may we be faithful outside of the church to speak of your grace. Give us that wisdom that we so desperately need. Give us the boldness that we so often lack. Give us grace and humility as we seek to be faithful communicators of your grace to a lost world. And Father, we pray as we see again in Paul's life that we would follow his example in practicing your grace. Acknowledging the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us striving to be with God's people in a way that is honoring to you is a blessing to the saints that we join with. Striving for unity in this body, striving for obedience always to your word. Father, even in the discipline of setting our hearts on the hope of heaven, these are all examples of how we can steward your grace. So we ask that you would build us up, that you would lead us, that we would be found faithful stewards of the manifold grace that we have received in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.